Good everyone. Grace and peace to you all on this chilly Sunday morning or Sunday evening, the first Sunday of the year. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Paul's letter to the Galatians. Paul's letter to the Galatians will be in chapter 5 this evening, looking at verses 1 to 6. Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. And the title of the sermon this evening, everyone, is The Freedom of a Christian. The Freedom of a Christian. And once you find your places in Galatians 5, 1 to 6, please stand with me for the public reading of Scripture. Galatians 5, 1 to 6, the freedom of a Christian. This is the Word of God, church. Starting here in Galatians 5, verse 1, Paul the Apostle writes, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look. I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith Working through love. This is the word of God, everyone. Let's go before him one more time in prayer. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for this day that we're able to gather a second time this Sunday in the evening. God, it is a grace. God, it is a gift to be able to gather in your name and just to sing songs of praise for what you have done on Mount Calvary, Lord, for our sins to die in our place so that we may have life in you. And that, God, we're able to gather as the body of Christ, as the family of God, to hear your word preached so that, God, we will be exhorted where we need to be exhorted, encouraged where we need to be encouraged, and ultimately, God, made more into the image of your, of, of, of your son, Jesus, so that, God, as we go into our work weeks, into, into our schools, into our families, into our jobs, that we're able to bring you glory, God, of making disciples of all the nations um, because we are further sanctified into your image um, based on what your word has to tell us this evening. So Lord, I just pray that your word will, would nourish your sheep this evening. Pray for any unbelievers here or anyone listening online um, that you would just plant a gospel seed in their heart so that God, they'll just be convicted of their sinning against you as the creator God and come to faith in you. And that God, you just be with myself, Lord. That God, I am a man, I am a messenger, and God, I pray that I'll just be your, your spokesman, Lord, for your word, not to mess it up in any way, but that God is your word going to your people so that God, they understand it, they realize why it's relevant to their lives, and that ultimately, Lord, they're able to apply it through their lives all for the sake of your name until you were turn to make all things new, King Jesus. Lord, we love you. We just thank you for this time that we have together. We lift up all these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Be seated, everyone. The American abolitionist Frederick Douglass records in his autobiography that knowledge makes a man unfit to be a slave. It's actually Douglass's slave master who makes this, this, this remark. He says this because his wife tries to teach the young Douglas how to read and write. And yet he reasons that doing so would make him unfit to be a slave, for educating slaves would empower them to either escape or demand their emancipation altogether, that is, demand their freedom. And yet the fact that Douglas records these words from his former slave master years later demonstrates that he did learn how to read and write helping toward the abolishing of slavery in America. However, I share this quote because there is a far worse version of slavery that still exists today. Not only does it transcend all human culture, 
but it stems from the very beginning of human history. I am referring to humanity's slavery to sin, humanity's rebellion against the creator God of the Bible. It's this spiritual slavery that accounts for all the world's brokenness, evil, suffering, and death in the world. It's this spiritual slavery to sin that not only makes humanity unable to free themselves from it, but unwilling to do so too. And so the only kind of knowledge then that makes a person unfit to be a slave to sin is not anything within yourself. It's not any power you have in yourself or any truth that you may find in yourself. The only kind of knowledge that makes a person unfit to be a slave to sin is the freedom the creator God provides. And that freedom, loved ones, is what God graciously offers in the gospel. And it's only the truth of God's word that has the power to break your shackles from sin and death once and for all. As Jesus himself says in the Gospel of John, that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Therefore, if you have repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus, the Son of God, as Lord and Savior, you are free. You are free from your bondage to sin, to death, and ultimately, God's wrath in hell. And although such good news is available for people from all the nations, there is the danger, however. There is the danger of denying this beautiful reality. And it's with this in mind that Paul the Apostle writes to the Galatians tonight. What is the point of our text this evening? What is the point of Galatians 5, 1 to 6? It's this, that you stand firm in the freedom you have in Christ that you stand firm in the freedom you have in Christ. Because one of the greatest temptations in the Christian life is to find freedom apart from the only freedom offered in the gospel. And so this begs a couple questions. How might you find such freedom in Christ? Or sorry, how, might, how do you as a Christian maintain such freedom? And yet, if there's any unbelievers here tonight, how might you find such freedom in Christ too? And it's with these questions in mind that Paul gives two reasons, or two responses. He gives two responses that humanity will ultimately give regarding the freedom that Christ offers in the gospel. The first response is, depending upon the power of the flesh leads to slavery. Depending upon the power of your flesh, your strength, that leads to slavery. That's the first response that we're going to see tonight, particularly in verses 1 to 4. The second response is depending upon the power of the Spirit leads to salvation. Depending upon the power of the Holy Spirit leads to salvation, and we'll see that at the end in verses 5 to 6. And so with all this in mind, let's look at the first response. So, um, the first response that you may give regarding this freedom that is only available in the gospel. And so the first reason or first response is depending on the power of your flesh leads to slavery. Depending upon the power of your flesh leads to slavery. This is the first response we're going to begin with tonight, loved ones. And so look at your Bibles then. Look at your Bibles in Galatians 5.1. Paul the Apostle writes this. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And so Paul begins by declaring a bold, yet biblical truth, which is, for freedom, Christ has set us free. In other words, Christ has set you free as his people for the sake of freedom. And yet that begs the question, 
What does Paul mean by freedom? And to answer this question, we actually find it in the message of his letter so far. And so to briefly recap then, excuse me, Paul the Apostle writes his first inspired letter here to the churches in a place called Southern Galatia, which today in our maps, loved ones, would be modern-day southern Turkey, around AD 49. But why? Well, the problem was he had false teachers. Particularly, he had Jewish Christians from Jerusalem who were teaching a false gospel. They came to these churches in Galatia, and they were telling these Gentile Christians, which just means they were non-Jews, they were teaching them that you need to be Jewish to be saved. In other words, you got to keep the law. You got to get circumcised. You got to keep the feasts. You got to do good works, be good people, so that you could be saved. As Paul records in Galatians 1 6 7 about this problem, he says to the Galatians, I am astonished. I am shocked that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And although these Jewish Christians would say that, yes, you are saved by believing in Jesus, but they would also add, you're saved by believing in Jesus and doing good works of the law. And yet it's in light of that message that Paul's like, that's not true, because you're not saved by believing in Jesus and doing good works. Instead, you are saved by your faith in Christ alone. As Paul makes clear in Galatians 2.16, he says, we know that a person is not justified or declared right by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. In other words, you cannot make yourself right before God by just being a good person. Because at the end of the day, no one does good No, not one. Everyone has sinned. Everyone has fallen short of God's glory. And as a result, the consequences for breaking God's law is the curse of the law. In other words, the wages of sin is the just judgment of the creator God's wrath in hell forever. And yet, in contrast, you are only declared right before God by your faith in Christ alone. Since Christ is the perfect God-man, he is able to save you from, your, from the curse of sin, and as a result, he gives himself for you on the cross. Why? Because he loved you so much as his people. And as a result, as we've been looking at Galatians, you are no longer an enemy of God if you believe in Jesus by faith alone. Why? Because the Son of God added humanity to himself so that people from all the nations would, be, would become sons and daughters of God. That's why we celebrated Christmas a couple weeks ago. Because as a result of that beautiful reality, loved ones, you inherit not eternal wrath. Instead, you inherit the promise of salvation first given to Abraham by faith all those thousands of years ago. And so when you look at Galatians 5.1 then in your Bibles, for freedom Christ has set us free, all that means then is that Christ has set you free from the curse of sin. Christ has set you free from the penalty of death, eternal death. Christ has set you free from God's wrath and hell, and he has even set you free from the power of the temptations of your flesh, the world, and the devil. Doesn't mean its presence isn't here because we experience it daily, unfortunately. We won't bask in that reality until we get to heaven. And yet the power, at least, 
You have the power in Christ by the Spirit to say no to sin and to live for God. As a result, you have Christ's perfect righteousness. You have Christ's peace that surpasses all understanding because you have everlasting life that only Christ himself could offer you. And all this, again, is possible for what Christ has done for you on the cross. This is why Paul then says next in Galatians 5.1, if you look at your Bibles, loved ones, he says, stand firm, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And to make a helpful grammatical observation here, theologians for the past centuries, they have made a very helpful observation about a passage like this. What is the observation? Pay very close attention, and I'll, and I'll explain it. It's very simple. They, theologians for the past centuries have been saying that the indicatives of Scripture precedes the imperatives of Scripture. You're be like, John, what the heck does that mean? Trust me, I will explain it shortly. The indicatives of Scripture precede the imperatives of Scriptures. In other words, what God has done, that is the, that is the indicatives, it, always, it usually precedes what you must do in light of it. That is the imperatives. Or if I may put it another way, and I'm going to play off the words of a famous philosopher, I am, therefore I do. I am whatever God has done in the word, therefore in light of that, I do such things. And so when you look at Galatians 5.1 then, the indicative of what God has done for you, loved ones, is that he has set you free. Christ has set you free from sin, from death, and the wrath of God based on what Christ has done for you on the cross. That is, what, that is the indicative reality, what God is teaching us in his word this evening. And as a result, you are no longer an enemy of God. Instead, your identity, your identity is, is based on the fact that you are an adopted child. You are an adopted child of God by inheriting, again, the promise of salvation in Christ by faith alone. That's what, that, that's what God has done here. Therefore, how then shall we live? What are we called to do? The imperative in light of that then, in, in Galatians 5.1, is that you stand firm. Stand firm in this reality. And what Paul is getting at here is that you are to continuously stand firm throughout your life by this fact that you have been set free from your bondage to sin. And so do not, do not doubt, loved ones, your identity in God. Instead, grow in your faith. Grow in your hope and grow in your love as a follower of Christ. Because since Christ has set you free, you are now able to live how you were always meant to live, growing in your faith in God and loving your neighbor while waiting for the return of Christ in eager hope, in great anticipation. However, Paul also instructs in Galatians 5.1 to not submit again to a yoke of slavery. There's another imperative. So where he calls us to stand firm in the reality that you have been set free from your bondage to sin, Paul also says, don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now that phrase might be a little bit unclear, the yoke of slavery. If I may explain that, a yoke here, at least in ancient times, was usually a reference to a form of a forced burden. Think of like slavery in ancient times. And yet, this same phrase was also used in Jewish circles. It was also an honorable reference to actually keeping Torah, keeping God's law alongside any other responsibilities that God has given to humanity in life, whether it be governmental responsibilities, social, family, all that stuff, right? And so when we kind of look at what Paul is using here contextually, 
When Paul uses the phrase yoke of slavery, if you look again at Galatians 5.1, he is using it as a reference to the burdensome nature of keeping Torah. He is referring it to the reality that trying to, trying to live a life by keeping God's law, that is a great burden. Because remember, the Jewish Christians are teaching the Gentile Christians at Galatia to be circumcised, to observe these feasts, to obey the law. Why? So that you could be saved. And yet, Paul has been making it absolutely very clear that no one, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, non-Jew ethnically, no one can be saved by keeping the law. No one can be saved by doing good works. Why? Because no one is able to obey God's law perfectly. As Peter the Apostle agrees with Paul in Acts 15, 10 to 11, this is actually during the first church council in history, the Jerusalem council, Peter writes these words saying that, why are you putting God to the test by placing, notice the word here, a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers, that's referring to the prophets and the patriarchs in the Old Testament, nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will, and Peter is referring to the Gentiles. And so in other words, no one is able to bear the yoke of the law. No one is able to be saved by the law. Because to try it yourself or to force others is to place a burden. It's to place a burden that can never be carried nor lifted by mere human strength alone. And yet, this is exactly what the Galatians are trying to do. Paul, and as a result, Paul's like, stop it. Stop doing that and rather embrace the reality that you have been set free from the burden of the law. Why? Because they are saved just like you and I, loved ones, we are saved through grace by faith in Christ alone. And yet, as I talk about all this, though, perhaps there are some of you tonight who are feeling a little bit burdened, right? Maybe it's the burden of trying to be a Christian on your own strength, not depending upon the power of the Spirit like the Galatians. Or maybe for other people here, maybe for you, you're just weighed down by, really, the immense pressures in life. I know there's many. Pressures at work. Pressures at home in your family, pressures regarding finances, pressures from the culture especially. And yet, maybe there are some people here who are just overwhelmed by the burden of not being at peace in life. Like, John, I have not found peace in life. How do I find it? And maybe struggle in finding a community who accepts you for who you are, or even you, you yourself are struggling to really, like, who am I? What is my identity? Things that people in our culture struggle with, right? And yet, I mention this because everyone right now, including myself, in some way, shape, or form tonight is experiencing some sort of pressure due to the burdens of living in a broken and fallen world. And yet, despite that reality, despite whatever is troubling your heart today, the remedy is the same for you all. Because the remedy for whatever yoke you are burdened by is the yoke that Christ offers to you and himself. Consider what Jesus says himself. These are beautiful, encouraging words. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28-30, here is the heart of Christ. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Christ's yoke is easy and light. 
because he takes your greatest burdens in this world upon himself ultimately in the cross. Truly then, Christ in heaven is gentle and lowly in heart towards sinners like us on earth. And so approach him by faith. Approach him by faith and you will find rest in him. He understands what you're going through because he lived as a man himself, yet without sin. He desires to set you free from your burdens in life so that you may find freedom, but not just freedom in general, but freedom to live the life you were always meant to live by faith in him. That's what Christ promises. That's his heart for people like us. And so whatever is burdening your hearts, loved ones, turn to Christ by faith and so that you may find rest in him ultimately. Moreover, Paul continues his argument here, and he eventually then moves to the first response. What I just mentioned was the, was the command of what we ought to do tonight, and yet what Paul is about to say in the rest of our time together are really these two responses that any person may give regarding the freedom you um, regarding the freedom that you might respond regarding the freedom in the gospel. And so look at your Bibles in Galatians 5:2. Paul writes these words that look. I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. And so now Paul is focusing here. He is focusing on the hopelessness of law-keeping, the hopelessness of depending upon your own strength for salvation. And if you look where Paul says, I, Paul, say to you, he actually does this throughout his letters. Every time he mentions his own name, like later in the letter, he's either doing one or two things. He's either trying to emphasize a point or add credibility regarding his apostolic presence in the letter. And so in our case this evening, whatever Paul's about to say, he wants the Galatians, and especially you and me tonight, loved ones, he wants us all to really pay attention to what he is about to say as an apostle, as a a messenger of the Lord Christ Jesus himself. And he begins by saying the following condition, the following sentence in Galatians 5.2. Look there again where he says, If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. And what's interesting, when we read this passage slowly, this sentence actually suggests that the Galatians, they have not taken that next step of subjecting themselves to circumcision. Although they are indeed in the process of considering it, it's like, oh, maybe we should get circumcised. Paul is being very firm here. He's he's being very firm here because he wants them to stop it. He wants them to pause and reflect. He says that if they take this next step of being circumcised, what does he say? Christ will be of no advantage to them anymore. In other words, Christ will no longer benefit them. But what does Paul mean by that? Well, he actually mentions earlier in Galatians 2.21, consider what he says about himself regarding this same reality. He says, I... Paul, I myself do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And so Paul himself says that if he trusts in his good works for salvation, that is in himself alone, he no longer trusts in God. He no longer embraces God's grace through the cross of Christ for salvation. And if he he no longer trusts in the person and work of Christ on the cross, then in a sense, Christ dies for no purpose. And so what Paul is getting at here is that if the Galatians do get circumcised, they are no longer trusting Jesus for their salvation. Instead, they're trusting in themselves. They're trusting in their own power, their own power of law-keeping to save themselves. And at that point, 
Christ no longer benefits them because they do not trust in him for salvation anymore. And it's with this, and it's with this reality in mind then that Paul builds upon this point in the next two verses. So we're going to jump ahead and spend and camp in these two verses for a little bit. Look at your Bibles in Galatians 3 to 4, how Paul builds his argument here. He writes these words. He says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. And so when Paul says that he testifies again to every man, he is referring to what he just said in the previous verse. If any of the Galatians, particularly the men, get circumcised, which again, Paul has in mind the men here, Christ will not benefit them for salvation. And so with that in mind, he then adds this in Galatians 5.3, that whoever accepts circumcision, whoever accepts circumcision here, he is obligated to keep the whole law. What does that mean though? In other words, if Paul is, if, if any man is going to get circumcised, they are no longer depending upon God's grace for salvation. Instead, they're depending upon the law. And if they do that, they are now obligated to keep the whole law. Consider what James says here. He, he's the half-brother of our, of our Lord. His language is very similar to what Paul is getting at here. James writes in James 2.10 that for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. So in other words, to be circumcised is to be obligated to keep the whole law. And since no one is capable of doing that because it's impossible because of sin, you are then a lawbreaker. A lawbreaker not reaping eternal life, but a lawbreaker reaping eternal death. And what's interesting here, just to really emphasize Paul's point, there's actually a subtle wordplay. Paul is, is, is using words here very interesting. Here in Galatians 5, 2 to 3. You're not going to see this word play in your Bibles, but I'm only bringing it up because it really, it, 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 it's a neat way for Paul to emphasize this point. And so look at Galatians 5.2. Look at where he says, you know, if you get circumcised, Christ will not benefit you anymore. And that word for benefit or, 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 or advantage, it depends what translation you have. In the Greek, it's the word aphelase. Aphelase. I don't expect you to know that, but just, just keep that, what it sounds like in your mind, right? Aphelase. That's what the word benefit means. As a result, when Paul continues to verse 3, he then says, you're obligated to keep the whole law. And that Greek word for obligated is the word aphelates. You hear that similarity of sound? Benefit, aphelase, obligated, aphelates. And the only reason why I, I, I bring that up, because what Paul is doing here, Paul's point is that if these Galatian men get circumcised, Christ's perfect work on the cross will not benefit them for salvation. Instead, they are obligated to save themselves through their own obedience to the law. That is what Paul is getting at here with the Galatians. However, before I can move on to verse 4, though, we need to pause, though. We need to pause and personally reflect on what is going on here. Because I'm sure that we have all struggled with whether we should get circumcised or not, right? Just kidding. I know we haven't because that's not something that we are dealing with in our culture. And yet, to, to really understand how does a passage like this affect our lives today, loved ones, we need to ask the question, what is it that the Galatians are really struggling with here? What is it that Paul, the reason why Paul's being so stern here, what is it about the circumcision stuff that, that the Galatians are struggling with? And to put it quite simply, the Galatians are struggling with legalism. 
They're struggling with legalism here. And just think about that. Legalism is the belief that you can be accepted by God by making yourself right before God based on your performance, based on what you do regarding your law-keeping. That's exactly what the Galatians are trying to do here. They're trying to do it on their own strength. They're trying to be circumcised, keep these Jewish feasts. And although we may not struggle with those things particularly, right, I know that we have similar struggles nonetheless with legalism. For example, and this might not apply to everyone, but this is a broad example of of what I hear from brothers and sisters who come from other churches. Maybe you've come from a church that teaches that, for example, Christians can't drink alcohol. All right. However, the, if, you, if you read the Bible closely, the Bible never prohibits a Christian from drinking alcohol. It just says that you are not to be drunk with alcohol, right? You are to be full of the Spirit instead, as Paul says in Ephesians 5.18. Now, as I say that, though, it doesn't mean that you should not be concerned about drinking, say, before a fellow brother or sister who struggles with the sin of drunkenness. Christian love demands that for the sake of not causing your brother or sister to stumble into the sin, you should refrain at that point in time. You should refrain from drinking before them regarding the situation. And yet, even with that in mind, that does not mean that you can't still do so when they're not around. This is the Christian freedom Paul is, is discussing in passages like Romans 14 to 15. And although I don't want to bore you down with all these examples, but I can make similar illustrations regarding music, maybe movies. Clothing, different dating tips, what, what Bible translation you should read. It sucks that Christians actually, you know, are, are, are very debate on this. What instruments you should use in Sunday service. And yet the problem with all these different things is that when you enforce rules like these, not found in Scripture, it's not found in Scripture. That's the problem. These are man-made laws, usually. They're usually made up. And I understand Sometimes these arise so that it can help us not go into sin or to maybe not help cause other people to sin. Sometimes it does come from a good motive. However, the problem is that when you enslave yourself to your own system of law-keeping that makes you dependent upon your own performance of salvation, that's the problem. When you, when you, when you, when you trust in your own salvation like these man-made rules or even God's rules, any time that you start to trust in your own performance for salvation, that is the problem because you didn't fall into the spiral excuse me this depressing spiral of trying to prove yourself to god that oh man i have all these sins but if i do enough good works maybe my good works outweigh my bad works and god will finally accept me or i will finally be loved and yet when you think that way loved ones you are thinking like a legalist you are guilty of trusting in your performance for salvation instead of the perfect work of christ on the cross and yet, even when I say that, right, perhaps there are some others here like, well, John, I don't really struggle with legalism. And with that in mind, although I'll be tempted to say you're a liar because I think we all do in some way, shape, or form, I would say this. If, if anyone does think that, I would agree and disagree with you at this point of time. What do I mean by that? Because again, we, I think we all struggle with legalism in some way, shape, or form. The question you need to ask yourself is, what kind of legalist are you? And that might sound like, John, what do you mean by that? Well, here's a couple questions. Do you believe that you are saved by being your best self before God? That I, I, need to, I need to depend upon my performance, keep these laws so that God will accept me? That's legalism. That's the first question you got to ask yourself. Or the second one, 
Do you believe that God will forgive you regardless of what you do because you believe in Christ? And if, and if you fall into that second question, then you are, excuse me, what, what some people refer to as an antinomian. Maybe perhaps you've heard of that term, antinomianism, anti-law, against the law. It generally refers to the idea that you don't need to obey God's law. Since you're, since you're forgiven in Christ by your faith in him, why does it matter how you live? Since you obey, since you believe in Christ as Savior, you don't really have to live for him as Lord. You can do whatever you want. And, you know, although you may sin and fail, God will forgive me, right? That's this idea of antinomianism. And some people sometimes refer to this as carnal Christians. Oh, those carnal Christians, they haven't matured yet. And yet, that's false. You don't find that in the scriptures. And actually, within recent centuries, people have actually termed, dubbed that, that mentality as something called easy believism. Maybe you've heard of that. This, this idea that, oh, because I said a prayer at some point in my life at the church, I, I, I raised my hand, I, I profess faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, which is great, and yet you don't do anything with it. You, you, um, after that time, you, you live whoever you want, Monday to Friday, you party it up, you, you get lit, live like the world, right? And yet when it comes Sunday, it's like, oh, it's church. Oh, I, I got to get, gotta get right with the guy upstairs. You repent. Go to church, you look good on the outside, but then you repeat that process all over again. That is easy believism. That is antinomianism, and it's actually a great problem in the American church, unfortunately. And yet, the reason why I'm bringing these ideas of legalism, trying to be saved by your own works, or antinomianism, that, oh, God's going to forgive me, I can live wherever I want, right? The reason why I'm bringing these two together, because these are two ways of how you try to save yourself at the end of the day. These are two ways of how you try to find salvation in yourself. And so whether you're going to try your best through law-keeping, legalism, or just like, eh, I'm just, just going to go party it up on the week and repent on Sunday because I believe in Jesus, these are insufficient forms of salvation, you cannot save yourself doing these two means. And so, wherever, so whether, wherever you find yourself in the spectrum of legalism or antinomianism, the one thing I have to say is that either way, you are an antinomian. What do I mean by that? John, what does it mean that a legalist or an antinomian? I thought they're black and white. I thought they're opposites. Not necessarily. Because these are both ways that you try to obey God's law in your own way, and yet you still fail to do so. As a legalist, you have your own rules, you have your own laws. Even if you try to keep God's law, you're depending upon something that you can't do. Therefore, you break God's law, and therefore, you're an antinomian. And if you're an antinomian, ah, I'm just going to believe in Jesus, I'm just going to do my own thing. You're not even trying, right? <laughs> you break the law, and therefore, you're going to receive the curse of the law as well. Again, you cannot save yourself in any of these ways. These are insufficient ways for salvation, I don't care how much you think I'm a good person or I can do this. No, we cannot trust in our own wisdom for salvation. Instead, we must trust in the one who is good so that he can tell us what is the way to salvation. It's with these, it's with these ideas in mind, loved ones, that Paul then further explains in Galatians 4. Look at your Bibles. He says, as a result, if, if you're on one of these two spectrums, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law... You have fallen away from grace. Again, if we go back to the Galatians, for example, they're trying to save themselves by making themselves right before God through good works, through circumcision and all that. And yet Paul says, you are severed from Christ at that point. 
And what's interesting is that in the Greek, it actually captures this idea of alienation or being cut off. In other words, because the Galatians are trying to save themselves, they're alienating themselves. They're separating themselves. They are cutting themselves off from Christ. Why? Well, as Paul says again in Galatians 5.4, they are trying to be justified by the law. And now what does that word justified mean? Because I know not everyone might know that. And this is actually a very important term. It's a very rich term in Paul's overall thought, especially in Galatians. And we've talked about this. And yet in general, what this word justified means is that it is God is the one. God, the creator God himself, he is the one who declares a sinner like you and me righteous before himself. Because the only way a sinner like you and me can receive this declaration is not by what we do, right? Not by our act of righteousness, not by our good works. Instead, you can only receive it through another man's righteousness by passively believing in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And this gets to the point what theologians have called the great exchange, which is one of the most beautiful realities for us as Christians through the gospel. What does this mean? Well, when, when Christ died on the cross 2,000 years ago, he died for all the sins of those who would ever believe in him, from all the nations. And so when, you, so when you're given a new heart, loved one, by the Spirit to believe in the gospel, your sins are imputed or they're placed into Christ's account on the cross. Think of a bank exchange here. So your sins are placed into Christ's account, and then as a result, he dies in your place as a sinless substitute, and as the God-man, he is able to pay your penalty in full by bearing the full wrath of God on himself with his own blood. That is what Christ does for us on the cross, and in exchange, he gives you his perfect righteousness that he earned on earth as the perfect God-man. And so when God sees you at that point in time, you are no longer a guilty sinner before him. No matter what you have done, no matter all the mistakes that you've done in the past, if you have placed your faith in Christ Jesus, all your sins were paid in full on Mount Calvary. They were paid in full on the cross. And as a result, God sees you and says, you are no longer guilty before me. Rather, you are declared righteous based on what my son has done for you. And we've got to remember, you didn't earn it. You only received it as a gift. This is what Paul means, that you are justified before God, that it is not by works, by what you do, but rather it is by faith in Christ alone who pays your sin debt in full on the cross. That's what this word justified typically means. But when we look at Galatians 5.4 again, he's using it in a slightly different manner. How he's using it here is that instead of the Galatians, you know, throwing themselves upon Christ to, to, to trust in him for their salvation, what they're doing instead is that they're trying to make themselves right. Instead of going to Christ to make them right, they're counting on themselves to make them right before God. And as Paul has been saying, as I have been saying, it's impossible. It's impossible. No one can keep the law perfectly. And as a result, Paul says this at the end of Galatians 5.4, you have fallen away from grace. In other words, if these Galatians try to save themselves by their own good works, they have not received God's grace, but they have fallen away from it. And that doesn't mean that they lost their salvation. God keeps those whom he elects and finishes the work he began in them to the very end, which is very encouraging for us, right, loved ones, that, that God per perseveres his saints in the beginning all the way to the end in glory. And yet, if, if the Galatians do walk away, 
It just means that they never understood the free gift of the gospel in the first place. They were never saved if they truly walk away. However, Paul doesn't think that they will, and I'll cover this next time in Galatians 5, 7 to 12. This will, this will be the next one when I preach. Paul, we're actually going to see that Paul's optimistic that they will repent from this error of their ways and actually embrace Christ by faith alone. So something to look forward to, right? And yet, reading this, at least what we've talked about in, in verses 1 to 4 so far, this serves as a grim reminder for all of us, loved ones. As Paul warns the Galatians, do not submit to any form of slavery. Do not submit to any form of slavery, whether it's your man-made rules you think you need to keep to be in God's favor, or any sins that may tempt you um, to take you away from to, to take God's free grace for granted as cheap grace. You must stand firm, loved ones. You must stand firm in the only remedy that can heal you of your soul regarding both these dangers, whether it's trusting in yourself to, to, to be good or doing whatever you want to take God's grace for granted. And that remedy, loved ones, is the grace of God. It's God's grace that will guard your hearts in trying to earn God's favor because at the end of the day, it is, a, it, is, it is impossible. And to kind of understand what this idea of grace means, I'll, I'll throw another illustration at you. Again, we just came out of Christmas, and yet, as it comes to Christmas, right, we, we partake of this cultural phenomenon of exchanging presents with one another. And for those who receive presents, maybe you children here, let me ask you a question. Did you receive these presents because you worked for them? No. <laughs> Some of you probably don't even have enough money to cover all the presents that you got, right? No. They were freely given to you as a gift based on whoever gave it to you. And yet, now this is a question for the adults or anyone who was able to give a gift. When you gave a gift, do you give it because a person earned your favor? So like, oh, he did this for me. I'm, I'm going to repay him with the gift. Not necessarily, right? I hope that wouldn't be the case, right? Generally, we give a gift because we want to. We love that person, and we want to express that love through action. This is what makes a gift a gift by definition, and this is the same of God with us. God gives you what you do not deserve, and that is everlasting life in his son. And, 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 and also on the flip side, he also withholds what we do deserve. That is everlasting damnation in hell. That's what it means for God to be merciful. To be, for God to be merciful, he doesn't give us what we deserve, which is hell. And in contrast, he gives us what we don't deserve, which is everlasting life. That's grace. Consider what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 to 9. He says, it is by grace then. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. So, so if, if anyone here struggles with a tendency to legalism or you have a, a background of legalism in previous churches, remember this reality. You did not save yourself. It is God who saved you. So don't depend upon yourself. Depend upon the one who saved you in the first place. Again, run to the grace of God. And yet on the flip side, if you find yourself a tendency to like, ah, I can live whoever I want. God's going to forgive me, right? Don't take God's grace for granted either. As Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He doesn't say if you love me, you will break my commandments, take advantage of me. No, he says if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And in the context of Jesus' teaching, we obey him because we love him and we love him because we, because we obey him. And we're only able to love God 
at all? Because he has first loved you and me through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And again, this begins with faith made possible by God's grace. And so whatever your struggle may be, right, whether it be legalism or antinomianism, remember that it is by grace you have been saved through faith. The same grace that saved you is the exact same grace you must depend upon daily to live the Christian life. Because to depend upon legalism or antinomianism, that is to trust in yourself. That is to trust in your power, your own flesh, which at the end is very weak to save you. And just to kind of share something that I read recently, um, this is a quote from Francis Schaeffer in one of his sermons. I'm not going to quote it. I'm just going to summarize what he gets at. He, he gives this long list of like what, like all these problems that we may think that's in the world, right? Like different political ideologies, different problems in the world. And Schaeffer lists all these problems and he says this many years ago. And yet he says all these things that I'm listing that we may think is the problem, what the world thinks are the world's greatest problems, that is not the church's greatest problem. You want to know what the church's greatest problem? The church's greatest problem is when they try to do the things of God in the power of the flesh and not in the power of the Spirit. Francis Schaeffer saw this decades ago, and I think this is a reminder that we must hang on to today, loved ones. That the same grace that saved you is the exact same grace we must depend upon each and every single day as we live the Christian life. Whether it be how you raise your families, children, how you obey your parents, how, how, how you conduct yourself as a student in school, not cheating but walking with integrity, you know, husbands loving your wives, wives loving your husbands, all these different things, right? How we work in the workplace, doing things for the glory of God. All these things that God has called us to do is not ultimately by our strength alone because we are weak, we're fragile. Rather, we're called to depend upon him who has called us, upon him who has saved us by his grace as a gift. We're called to depend upon Christ for all that we do in the Christian life. Because again, anything that you, not because of anything that we have done right, but for what Christ has done for you on the cross. Truly then, this marks the beginning of living the blessed life. The life of true human flourishing, what we may call the Christian life, and yet Paul is going to have so much more to say about it when we get to Galatians 5 to 6. Um, this, uh, but yeah, before I get to those last two passages, there is something I need to address, though. In light of everything I've been talking about, especially regarding legalism and antinomianism, there is one thing I need to address because we live in a culture. Maybe we, we, we can all agree upon what, we, what the Word of God says, but we live in a culture, we live in a time, we live in a country that people could care less about obeying, let alone even believe in God's commandments anymore. The fact that American culture knows how they ought to behave and still fail to do so proves that, whether they want to admit it or not, they depend upon the Christian worldview. They depend upon the book of the Bible for the existence of moral absolutes, how we know what is right and wrong. Why? Because at the end of the day, whether you want to admit it or not, God, the creator God of the Bible, he is the standard of what is right and wrong. And I bring that up. Because there is a new standard that is rising in this Western world. If I may put it this way, it is really a new law that if you fail to keep it, you will find yourself on the wrong side of history. Culturally speaking, you will be canceled, your voice will be trampled out, and you won't be doing anything about it. What am I referring to? You've heard of it, probably. I'm talking about this new law that people are calling critical race theory, or CRT. And what... I, Perhaps most of you have heard of it because this has really been at the center of discussion 
in our culture for the past couple years, and maybe you've heard it more um, popularly referred to as cultural Marxism. But for those who have heard of it and don't really know what it is, I'm going to explain it. I'm going to explain why I bring it up in this passage tonight. And this will let you know some of the information that I, 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 I'm, I'm summarizing a lot of things here about this. I just want to let you know I'm not smart enough to be able to come up with these things myself. No, I'm pulling on resources by guys like Neil Shenvey, Pat Sawyer. They're experts in this field, and they're very helpful guys to, to, to have a clarity from a Christian worldview when it comes to this topic ravaging in our culture. So with that in mind, what is CRT and why should we be concerned about it in our text this evening? Well, ultimately, CRT, critical race theory, it ultimately views reality through the lens of power. Where some people groups are under the category of, say, oppressor, depending on their race, their class, their gender, their sexuality, and whatever, you have this other class of people and they are categorized as the oppressed. And yet, when it comes to this idea of oppression, it's not this oppression by force or this discrimination for, for anything. Rather, it is, a, it is an oppression that is harnessed through power, hegemonic power, which is, um, which is really, you have the oppressor group, and they're imposing their values, their norms, and their expect, expectations on society as a whole. And as a result, so much more can be said about that. Like Christianity, then, CRT is a worldview. CRT has a narrative. Think about Christianity. Christianity, what is the story of the Bible? It is the story of the Bible of God making a people for himself, starting in creation all the way to restoration. That's the story of the Bible, right? That is, our, that is the basic summary of our worldview as Christians. Humanity is made in God's image, and although humanity has sinned against God, God offers salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. And yet, on the other hand, when we think about CRT, it is, a, it is also a story, it is also a narrative, but it is focused on power starting from oppression and going all the way to this idea of liberation. It teaches that everyone is a member of either the oppressor class or the oppressed class regarding your specific identity markers. And as a result, the oppressors, the people on top, Supposedly, right? They need to give up their power to liberate these oppressed people because if they don't do that, what the oppressed need to do, they need to gain power. They need to gain power to liberate themselves by destroying the social structures and institutions that society is enslaving them. And what's interesting then, when it comes to CRT, the greatest sin then is this, is this idea of oppression and the way to salvation is liberation. And if you're like, John, how does this affect how, how, how does this affect our world today? I'll give the most recent example of this. Think about everything that has gone on so far with the events surrounding Hamas and Israel. Whatever you believe about that attack on October 7th, 2023, I will say from the Bible, from, from an objective standpoint of what is right and wrong, based on what God says is right and wrong, no matter what you say, when you look at the attack, it was blatant evil. No matter, no matter what you think, the God of the Bible says, because, because he is the standard of what is right and wrong, based on that standard, what happened on that day was blatant and evil because he had Hamas killing people like innocent Israeli men, women, children, raping women, um, you know, taking hostages and stuff like that, and really nothing short of an atrocity. And yet the most shocking thing is how the world responded. Not everyone, but a lot of the world to this event. How did they, how did they respond? They didn't sympathize for Israel. Rather, they sided with Hamas. 
Why? Because they consider them to be these freedom fighters who will liberate Palestine from its oppression to Israel. Do you see how CRT kind of fits into this? And there's many in the West, especially the younger people like my age in these college campuses, they view Israel or they have bought into the idea that Israel, oh, they're the oppressor. They're not the victim. They are the oppressor because Hamas, they are the oppressed. And so whatever Hamas does to Israel, eh, it doesn't matter, right? Because they're trying to gain power. They're trying to speak truth to power by liberating themselves from the enslaving structures and institutions of Israeli life. And if they have to kill innocent men, women, and children to do so, then so be it. It's, it's Israel's fault that this has happened in the first place. This is the new land that is rising in our Western culture. And, and another thing that was shocking is that, is just to really show how twisted the, the morality of our world is today, you, you take a large group like Generation Z, right? People my age and, and, and a little bit younger, the fact that you have people in my generation that they would take that open letter by Osama bin Laden just to find his attacks on 9-11, which is really, it was a disorganized rant on, on, his, on why he hates Israel so much. The fact that you have Generation Z really thinking like, oh, Osama, he was right. He was the hero. It really just shows that our world's morality is upside down. We live in a world that people are truly calling evil good and good evil right before our very own eyes. And I mention this because whoever trusts in this law of CRT, I don't think anyone here does, but if anyone has fully bought into this worldview, again, this is not sufficient knowledge that will make you free from your slavery to sin. And now I know if there's anyone listening to me online who embraces CRT, I know that people would say that because of my heteronormative privilege as a white male who happens to be a Christian, I can't say anything on this topic. Only the lived experience of those in the oppressed group can speak truth. And although I will be accused of not having this access to this secret Gnostic knowledge of truth, I will share this. And I'm going to ask a question. Was not Christ... A Jew under the reign of the Roman Empire, was he not the most oppressed individual as the suffering servant when he died on the cross as an innocent man for for guilty humanity? Did not Christ teach that oppression is not humanity's greatest problem, but oppression to sin is? Did he not teach that salvation is found not in liberating humanity from its oppression from other people, but from its ultimate oppressor to sin? Did not he teach that freedom is not speaking truth to power, but it comes from the truth of God's word that will set you free? Again, only such knowledge in Christ is enough to make you unfit to be a slave because Christ died on the cross for your sins so that you would be set free from the cruel slave master of sin. And so before anyone accuses Christianity of being the white man religion, just remember how it started off. It started off with a small minority group in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago with a small group of Jewish Christians. And yet, when you, look at, when you look at history, they didn't embrace anything like CRT. They embraced the gospel. And what the gospel called them to do was to deny themselves and to love as others as Christ did, even loving their enemies. This was not a message built on revenge or partiality, but loving one neighbor so that God would redeem a people from all the nations Indeed, Christianity is the most inclusive religion 
inviting people from all the nations to come to Jesus because it's only through Christ that we're called to worship alone. That is the gospel, and that is why I believe that the story of the Bible is far more greater and far more beautiful of what people in this world aspire and long for. And so, loved ones, do not submit yourself to any yoke of legalism, of antinomianism, of CRT, or anything else that causes you to trust in yourself and not in the Creator God for salvation. Rather, stand firm. Stand firm that stand firm in your faith in Christ. He is your living hope now, and he will help you to love others as well. For Christ has set you free. If you depend upon yourself, truly then you will be a slave. And yet this is the first response, and this was the majority of my time that I wanted to focus on. Yet this builds on what I'm going to finish with this second response, this last response of how you can find freedom in Christ through the gospel. And so, so the second response is this. Depending upon the power of the Spirit leads to salvation. That's the second point, where the first point was depending upon the power of the flesh leads to slavery, which we just saw in our time together. We're going to finish off by seeing depending upon the power of the Spirit leads to salvation. So look at your Bibles in Galatians 5, 5, loved ones. Paul writes this, that for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. And so after Paul exhorts the Galatians to stand firm in the freedom they have in Christ, he calls them to live properly in light of it. Everything that he said in verses 2 to 4 is everything that the Galatians are not to do, including us. Now, Paul writes in Galatians 5 to 6, in chapter 5, of everything that we're called to do if you are truly free in Christ. And so Paul says that we ourselves await eagerly for the hope of righteousness. That's what he says in verse 5. We ourselves wait eagerly for the hope of righteousness. And yet, how do we do that, though? How do we wait for this hope of righteousness? And he says at the beginning of verse 5, through faith, for through the Spirit, by faith. That is how we do it. Where we are called to eagerly wait for this hope of righteousness, which I'll soon define, we are to do it through the Spirit, by faith. So let's answer that first question. What is the hope of righteousness? Well, to put it quite simply, the hope of righteousness is that day, is that glorious day in the future when the Christian will be fully glorified, when they'll be fully made like Christ and are with him in heaven. That is what that hope of righteousness ultimately refers to. Because as people, as Christians, we were not meant to live for this world. Although we're called to enjoy it with all of its gifts and beauty as an expression of worship to God, we are, not, we are not to ultimately love this world. Rather, we are made for God. We were made to love him. We were made to be in communion with him. And if, and if any of you think, John, that kind of sounds boring, then trust me, you have not thought deeply, you have not thought deeply about this as, enough. Because when you think about God himself, the God of the Bible, he is indeed the greatest being imaginable. He is the necessary being who has life in himself. All life that we see in the world, God has it in himself because his essence is his existence and his very existence is his, is his essence. He has life in himself. He's God. He's the creator. So much so that everything in creation is dependent upon him for his existence. And when you think about that, right? Everything in creation, John? Yes. And when you think about that, God then is the very essence of everything good of everything lovely, of everything beautiful, of, of all power, wisdom, justice, everything that we deem good in this world and so much more, all these things are found in God because God is these things in himself. The good we value in the world is but a mere shadow, 
of the eternal glories that the Christian will one day see in heaven. And so when I talk about the Christian having this hope, this is, the, this is only possible through one way then. It's only possible by you being united to Christ by faith alone. And as a result, you're no longer God's enemy worthy of eternal judgment. Instead, you're adopted into God's family, inheriting salvation forever. This is what Paul means by faith. You've got to believe in these things. You've got to trust in these things. As he says in Galatians 5.5, 5, but what does he mean exactly by the Spirit? Because I haven't really talked about that. What Paul means by the Spirit is, is that as we believe in these promises and wait for them with great faith, you have to do it through the power of the Spirit. Not trust in your own strength, but the power that the Spirit draws within us. Consider what Paul says in Galatians 4, 6-7. He writes, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And so God sends you his spirit to give you a new heart so that you may believe in Christ in the first place. And yet, even with that in mind, there is a far deeper reality to this. Consider what Jesus says to his disciples after the resurrection in John 20, 21 to 22. These are mind-blowing words. He says to his disciples, you know, he's resurrected, has the hole in his hands. Disciples are freaking out. It's like, oh my goodness, it's Jesus. He says these words, peace be to you. As the Father has sent me, Even so, I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. When we think about God of the Bible, what makes him so unique is that he's not only the one true God of all creation, but he is also triune. Three persons, three distinct persons in one nature. And and we know it as the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Three persons in one nature, one God. And so what Jesus just said here is mind-blowing words. He says it's the Father who sends the Son into the, into the world to redeem it. Yet it's both the Father and the Son who sends the Spirit to you and I as his people. And yet what's amazing is not only, is not only that you and I are sent in the Spirit as the Father has sent the Son, this is one of the basis of our unity. Our union with Christ is one of the most encouraging realities that we must think about as Christians. Especially when times get difficult, we must return to the fact that you you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price because you belong to God. And because we are united with Christ by faith through the Spirit, we are in a sense partakers of the divine nature by faith in Christ through the Spirit. And this is a deep mystery, but it's a profound, beautiful reality. And just to kind of help out with this, I want to read something from the Prince of the Puritans. He is, he is someone who has thought greatly about these things, and his name is John Owen. What I'm talking about, he, he puts it far more better in words. He says that in order to give himself to us, Christ gives you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was given to him to live in him and in all his fullness by the Father. This Spirit dwelling in Christ in all his fullness Christ, in turn, gives to all believers who dwell in him. And then he says this, this glorious union, this relationship that we have with Christ as believers, it's brought about in this way, that as Christ was born into the world and took our nature into his personal union with his own, so by the Holy Spirit, he takes us into the mystical union with himself. In other words, when Christ was born 2,000 years ago, he added humanity to himself so that he would identify with us as the God-man. And yet, as, as Christ brings us into relationship with him, 
we're able to have a relationship with God because God, or Jesus, he's both fully man, able to relate to humanity, and he's fully God. He's able to relate to God in the perfect essence, right? That's why he's the God-man, the mediator between God and man. And yet, in order for that to even happen, we got to believe in him by faith. And when we believe in him by faith, what unites us ultimately to that reality is this reality that we are adopted as sons and daughters by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's, just, it's, it's this union that we have with Christ forever. No one can take you out of it. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. This is something that we have forever. And since Christ is the one that we ultimately love with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we long for that day to be with him. That is the hope of righteousness, that we are sick and tired of the brokenness in this world, that we are sick and tired of being disappointed in this current reality. As Christians, we long for the hope that we have in Jesus. We long to be with our lover, our beloved, that is Jesus, our God in heaven. That is what it means to have this hope. It's not, it's not a blind hope. It's, it's a living hope that we have in Jesus, and it's something that we long all the day more. Paul the Apostle captures this very well in Romans 8, 23 to 25, where he says these things. He says, we ourselves, talking about us as Christians, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adopting as sons the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen with their eyes, that's not hope. For who hopes what he sees? But if we hope with what we do not see, we wait for it with great patience. So loved ones, there will be a day that, and, and even all of us, even if you don't believe, we're all going to see Christ one day. But he's either going to be your, your, your judge or your savior. And yet for the Christian, we long for the day that we're going to see him face to face with the eyes of sight. But in the meantime, you must pursue him daily with the eyes of faith. And the reason why this is so important, loved ones, because as C.S. Lewis once said, he said that the Christians, when you think of all the great Christians in, in history, those who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. So loved ones, only then will we grow in our longing for God, helping us to be more earthly good then as we are more heavenly minded. Long for the day to be with Christ. Seek him out by faith through the word because it is him that we're meant to live for. And this is the gospel. This is the, it's only by what Christ has done for us through the gospel that we're able to have salvation in him. Because Christ ultimately came down here 2,000 years ago. He, he died on the cross for our sins because we deserve nothing but eternal damnation and hell. And yet, the good news of the gospel is that Christ came down himself so that if you believe in him, repent, repent of your sins and follow him, you will be saved, and we know this message is true because Christ rose again three days later from the grave. I've been hinting to this gospel reality, and if there's anyone here who does not believe in the gospel, I exhort you. Repent of your sins, believe in Jesus, because it's only in the truth of the Son will you be made set free. And so, loved ones, how then shall we live in light of this reality? Well, Paul gives his own response as we close off with this last verse here in Galatians 5.6, and, and I'll be very brief with this. Paul writes these things that in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working in love. And so what Paul is ultimately getting at here is that because we have Christ Jesus, it doesn't matter if you're circumcised. It doesn't matter if you don't get circumcised. Those things don't save you. What does save you is your faith in Jesus Christ. That's why he says it's faith working through love. And what Paul is ultimately getting at here is that the essence of the Christian life, how we live by our faith in Jesus, is by growing in faith in him, working through 
love. You know you're a Christian. You know if your faith is real, if you're growing in your love each and every single day for God and for others. Consider what Martin Luther says, and, 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 I'll, and I'll close off with this point because I know I'm over time. <laughs> but I, I, I end off with this quote, and I, and I find these to be some of the most helpful, most thought-provoking words of how you and I should live as Christians in this fallen world. Consider what Martin Luther, he was a German theologian. He says this, that the Christian life is summarized in two words, faith and love. Inwardly, it consists in faith toward God and outwardly and loving works toward our neighbor. We are perfect Christians inwardly through faith before God, who has no need of our works, and outwardly before other people whom our faith does not benefit, but only our love or our works. Or if I may put it in one sentence, God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. And so loved ones, how then shall you live in light of this reality? Embrace and stand firm in the faith and the freedom that you have in King Jesus. And as a Christian, in light of that, grow in your love of him. Grow in your love of your neighbor. How can you love your neighbor? How can you serve your neighbor today regarding their various physical needs, knowing that the greatest spiritual need is to be born again, is to hear the gospel. And so, loved ones, as you meditate on the freedom that you have in Christ, stand firm in it by your faith in him. Deepen your faith by reading the Bible, going to church, praying to him in dependency. And as you do that, you're going to notice something quite beautiful. Not only are you going to grow in your love of God, but you're going to grow in your love towards neighbor, even those you consider your enemy. And when you do that, that paints the picture that you understand the gospel. That because God has loved us while we were his enemy, that we're able to love others in such a way so that they will not only experience the love of God, but that they may have the same hope that we have, that we long for Christ's return all the day more. Much more can be said, but I am out of time, loved ones. And so with that in mind, let us pray. We'll have a final song of worship, and I will give a communion warning with it as well. But with that in mind, join me in prayer, loved ones, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper.